and God bless the United States. <laughs> Cat got your teeth, Mr. President? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Because that was the best laugh I, I had all week. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Take what I can get these days. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. (laughs) Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. In Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 KSO in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV 102.3. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950. KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, Radio Sputnik, and many other fine affiliates, both terrestrial and on the Internet. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com, here with my trusty sidekick and, and producer, uh, producer <laughs> Desi Doyen, in this uh, yet another smoky day out here in L.A., uh, but at least, hey, Des, your your teeth are staying in, unlike the President of the United States. Allegedly. I mean, the President of the United Church. <laughs> oh, that's me. Coming up on today's program, uh, several stories that we have not been able to get to over the past week, thanks to, as usual these days, a ridiculous amount of breaking news that seems to derail other stuff, often uh, equally or more important, frankly. So, uh Want to get to some of those stories today, and if time allows, I've received quite a bit of listener mail um, over the past week to bradcast at bradblog.com on a number of the stories we've covered. We will see if the radio gods allow me to get to at least a few of them a little bit later in today's show. Uh, But first, as I mentioned, an update, and if I choke throughout today's show, um, it might be because of that smoke. Uh, that the smoke is, or the record low humidity. Yeah, both uh, of them are caught having grave circumstances around Southern California still again today. Uh, an update on the continuing wildfires out here in Southern California uh, that have seemingly been moving southward after breaking out several days ago up in Ventura County. Moving down here uh, in and around Los Angeles over the past day or so, and now it appears farther south down in San Diego, about two hours south of where we are here in Los Angeles. And again, thanks to those who have asked, we are doing fine. Uh, we're here in uh, in Hollywood. We're smelling uh, quite a bit of smoke again today. 
Um, but the skies uh, in the north seem blue and the skies in the south seem quite smoky. Down south, as it is here in Los Angeles, retirement communities built on golf courses, thoroughbreds in racehorse stables, and other usually serene sites were engulfed by flames as the San Diego area now became the latest front in this uh, California wildfire fight. The fire broke out there uh, on uh, yesterday amid dry, hot, windy conditions that continue across the region that would be extreme for any season, but are especially stunning just two weeks from winter. That fire in San Diego, as we went to air here, exceeded uh, at least six square miles in a matter of hours, burned dozens of houses, tore through a community known for its avocado orchards, horse ranches. Three people were burned while escaping the flames. I believe we've had one death now, Desi Doyen, in this fire. Uh, in, uh, in Up in the Ventura. Up in the Ventura fire. Yes. But, yeah, surprisingly, happily, uh, so far, anyway, many fewer deaths than the fires we saw up in Northern California just yes. a, a few weeks ago. The emergency alert system that they've upgraded now is seems to be working in getting people alerted sooner so they can get out faster. The fire near San Diego was on the eastern border of the Marine Corps' vast Camp Pendleton. Marine and Navy aircraft are now joining the battle down there, according to the fire chief at the base. Meanwhile, firefighter, firefighters up in Ventura, uh, which is about 130 miles to the north. So these fires are, it's a huge swath of area that we're talking about where these fires are breaking out. Uh, the uh, firefighters in Ventura tried to corral the largest and most destructive fire in the state of late. That has so far destroyed some 500 buildings. That's the so-called Thomas Fire. It's grown to uh, nearly 200 square miles since breaking out uh, almost a week ago on Monday. Fire crews made enough progress against large fires here around us, around L.A., to lift most of the evacuation orders in the area. Although, as I said, while it was we we had smelled smoke sort of uh, two days ago, yesterday wasn't bad. Now we're smelling it again. So I don't know. I don't know if there's new fires that are popping up in the area. Well, right now there are six major fires that are active across Southern California. That's that's big enough. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, in the fire burning north of San Diego, as the flames had approached uh, the elite San Luis Ray Downs training facility for thoroughbreds, AP reports, many of the more than 450 horses were just cut loose to prevent them from being trapped in their stables if barns caught fire. When barns caught fire, and actually uh, eight barns caught fire and the trainers were letting the horses out amid the smoke, they said it was pandemonium and chaos. Yeah, uh, herds of horses apparently uh, were seen galloping past flaming palm trees in a chaotic escape uh, in a normally idyllic place. Not all of those horses apparently survived. The California Horse Racing Board said approximately 25 horses were killed when eight barns burned and others in adjacent pastures were uh, unaccounted for at this hour. Surviving horses were taken to the Del Mar racetrack in uh, all of the uh, races at Los Alamitos um, at the race course down south there uh, on uh, Friday. All of those races were canceled as the racing community mourned. These were 
These were elite yeah. thoroughbreds, yeah. $100,000 horses. Now, the AP story cites uh, dry, hot, windy conditions that would be extreme for any season, but are especially stunning just two weeks from winter. Uh, but though uh, AP has been pretty good on uh, on climate in general, they don't mention any reason why, in this particular story, any reason why it is so hot and dry and windy. Uh, Desi Doyen, uh, scientists, uh, had we paid attention to them, saw this coming uh, at least a decade ago. Oh, yes, easily. So, so there's a couple of things to keep in mind here. Remember, climate change does not cause extreme weather events. It does not cause the wildfire. It makes them more extreme. So historically, we have Santa Ana winds. They occur in the fall. They're a seasonal weather pattern. It's been happening like forever. California's landscape has also evolved to burn and be dry. However, these mega wildfires in wintertime, that is new because of global warming, our baseline has changed. California is now warmer and drier overall, and we're also seeing really extreme swings in weather events from mm -hmm. hot and dry to cold and wet. So remember, we had that historic five-year drought. That was the worst in a thousand right. years. And then last year's El Nino brought record rains. Remember the Oroville Dam that almost sure. overflowed sure. and broke? Um, and then we... Those and that those rains caused uh, a huge growth in vegetation all over the place. Exactly. Exactly. So then when this summer we had record heat waves, then in October we had record heat waves, and in November we had record heat waves. And, that and dryness. We're seeing, we're seeing a, just a fraction of the rain that we would in yeah, normal times have during right. this. So we've yeah. had record heat waves, no rain. All that vegetation is yep. dead, so that's a lot of new fuel. And yes, this was predicted 10 years ago that climate change was going to alter California's fire season and make it longer. The, uh, the, the scientists at the time did computer models that looked ahead, and they predicted that our weather patterns were going to shift, that the Santa Ana winds, instead of coming during September and October, and then being followed by rain. Which, by the way, is when I remember them. I've been out in California for about 20 years now, and it was September, October, you'd get these huge warm winds coming in from the desert, not quite as much in, well, November and now December. Right, and that's what those computer models 10 years ago predicted, going from the Santa Anas in September, October, then to November and December, which would be fine if we would get some rain, but we haven't gotten any rain. And there's a reason for that, too. There's a second study, so that was 10 years ago, second study out this week, talks about how. It's the loss of Arctic sea ice. Now, this is a new and emerging theory. This is being actively studied right now. The loss right of now. Arctic sea ice? Yes. What happens in the, in the Arctic, Arctic is affecting not, us here in California? What happens in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic. So this is something you and I have talked about before. Again, I have to stress that this is an emerging area of research, so it is not well established, but it's looking increasing like this is the case. You're so safe. You're so conservative. Had you just sounded the alarm 10 years ago with that study, oh, wait, you actually did. So go ahead. Yeah. So anyway, so the changing weather, weather patterns, this is yep. how it works when you have melting Arctic sea ice. That means there's less ice reflecting the sun's heat back out into space. It also means that the open water there absorbs more heat. That warms the air in the atmosphere above the Arctic Ocean. So when the Arctic Ocean warms and the atmosphere above it warms, that actually changes the weather patterns of the jet stream. The jet stream is what moves our weather across the continent. And when you slow the jet stream down, you make it wavier, you get stalled weather patterns like heat waves and rainstorms, and that blocking blocks rainfall from getting to California. You're so sciencey. 
So much science. Who cares about science? Science doesn't matter. They don't know what they're talking about. They're all just they're all doing it to make money. So uh, the scientists and Al Gore can make money. That's what we've been told for the past 10 years instead of what you've been telling us, what you've been warning us about uh, on the Green News Report and on this show. Uh, had we just listened to those scientists and taken action, uh, maybe we could have avoided at least some of this. Uh, AP reports this week, as I noted, uh, they have been good on uh, on climate. Seth Borenstein in particular has been very good. Uh, in a, uh, a new study, a new analysis from uh, the Associated Press out this week, when it comes to filling jobs dealing with complex science, environment, and health issues, the Trump administration is nominating people with fewer science academic credentials than their Obama predecessors. By far, of 43 Trump administration nominees in science-related positions, almost 60% in those science-related positions, did not have a master's degree or a doctorate in a science or health field, according to the AP analysis. The AP analyzed 65 Senate-confirmable positions that deal with science and environment, many which many of which have not yet been filled uh, after uh, more than 10 months of this administration. And uh, they got a quote from Christy Todd Whitman. Remember, she's a Republican. She's a former Republican New Jersey governor, and she was the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA. Remember when we used during to complain years, during yes. the George W. Bush years? Remember when we used to complain that she, of all people, was in charge of the EPA? Yeah. Boy, would I love to have her back in charge at this point, given what we have now. Uh, she said... <clears throat> Uh, this is just reflected, reflective of the disdain that the Trump administration has shown for science. This is Christy Todd Whitman, a Republican. She says, when you're talking about science, issues about protecting human health, it's very, very complicated and sophisticated work. You need background and experience to handle these things, she said. It uh, this lack of scientists is especially noticeable in the energy department, which oversees. Well, according to uh, Sarah Palin, remember her? Uh, according to Sarah Palin, it, uh, they oversee what was it? Oil and 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 gas and so <laughs> forth at the energy department. In fact, the energy department oversees the nation's nuclear stockpile. So none of zero of the seven Trump energy science oriented nominees including the secret the undersecretary for science at the energy department none of them has even a master's degree in a science field five of their obama of the obama predecessors um, of their obama predecessors had master's degree in science fields four had science doctorates and some of them were nobel prize winners <clears throat> yeah exactly <laughs> two obama energy secretaries both had doctorates in physics stephen chu was a nobel prize winner in physics uh, Trump's energy secretary, Rick Perry, on the other hand, has a bachelor's degree in <clears throat> animal science and was a former governor. This is just hollowing out of expertise in these posts, says Max Boykoff. He's director of, of the Center for Science and Technology Policy Research at the University of Colorado. He says it's a really worrisome trend. Many of the 
Trump nominees who do have advanced science degrees, especially those at the EPA, come from working in or with the industries that they are now supposed to be regulating. So where we do have scientists, they're coming from the, you know, the oil and gas industries that they're supposed to regulate. They're shills from the industry that have shielded the industry from accountability and plan to do even more of that in these positions of authority. Even some Republicans are raising questions now uh, about the independence of the uh, scientific advice coming from these people. EPA Chief Scott Pruitt has also raised eyebrows by purging academic scientists from the agency's science advisory board, claiming that because they received EPA grants, uh, somehow they uh, their their input is uh, questionable, questionable is a conflict of interest conflict which of interest which but he's not. replaced them with industry connected ex- so-called experts. So no conflict of interest there on bringing in people from the industry that they're supposed to regulate. That's called regulatory capture. William K. Riley, who was EPA administrator under George H.W. Bush, said that the pattern of a repeated tilt toward industry scientists and ones known for disparaging the record of the agencies they are appointed to is worrisome. In 35%, Of the 65 Senate confirmable positions that deal with science and environment, the Trump administration uh, hasn't nominated anyone yet at all, including four top positions at the White House Office of, wait for it, Science and Technology Policy. So he's got no scientists in the White House. He has uh, fake scientists or at least industry scientists Uh, in a few positions elsewhere in these other agencies. And uh, beyond that, 35% of the Senate confirmable positions that have to do with science, nobody's nominated at all. Uh, The AP report goes on here to note that initial uh, appointments uh, by Obama included two winners of the Nobel Prize for Physics, That would be Energy Secretary Chu and Carl Wyman, who was Associate Director for Science of the White House Office of Science and Technology, where no one has been nominated, and and a winner of a MacArthur Genius Grant, also White House Science Advisor John Holdren under Obama. He had tried to appoint another Nobel winner as well, Peter Diamond, who had won the Nobel Prize for Economics to the Federal Reserve Board, Uh, But that was held up by Republicans in the Senate under Obama, who said that that guy didn't have enough experience and uh, that Nobel Prize uh, winner, uh, his nomination was withdrawn. Well, you know, facts have a liberal bias. And, you know, the Senate obviously uh, has a bias. <laughs> they're they're nominating these people who are wildly uh, have no experience at all in these jobs. And yet this Nobel Prize winner. He didn't have enough experience. All right. <clears throat> Quick break here. Uh, coming up uh, in advance of Tuesday's U.S. Senate election in Alabama. <sighs> between an accused Republican pedophile who was tossed off the state Supreme Court twice for failure to comply with the federal courts uh, and Democratic former U.S. attorney who successfully prosecuted members of the KKK, members of the Klan, for killing young African-American girls in the 60s. That's the contest on Tuesday. 
Uh, amidst that, we've got some news about fraud, both voter fraud and election fraud, and the fight for public oversight of that very important U.S. Senate special election. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. From the war against disorder, from the sirens night and day, from the fires of the homeless, from the ashes of the gay, democracy is coming to the USA. Well... Our version of it, anyway. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yep. Big U.S. Senate special election in uh, on Tuesday in Alabama. We will, as you might expect, be keeping our eyes on that. We have a story about that. People who are trying to keep their eyes on that election on Tuesday. And specifically the results. That in a moment. But first, Steve Curtis was the Colorado State Republican Party chairman from 1997 to 1999. And uh, he caused a bit of a stir just ahead of the 2016 presidential election when he said on KLZ 568M up in Colorado on the right-wing radio show that he hosted there at the time, he said, quote, It seems to be, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but virtually every case of voter fraud I can remember in my lifetime was committed by Democrats. <laughs> God. Well, let me uh, let me go ahead then, uh, Mr. Curtis, and correct you. You are wrong, even though voter fraud is uh, is fairly rare and extremely rare at the polling place itself, which is where Republicans are trying to change the laws to make it harder to vote, claiming there is massive uh, voter fraud going on at the polling place. So it's it's extremely rare there versus via absentee vote by mail voting there uh fraud voter fraud specifically is is uh, well we find it much more often yeah i could cite case after case incident after incident of voter fraud yes carried out by republicans that mr curtis uh the former republican party chair in colorado seems to not know anything about uh, including uh, cases of those who attempted to vote multiple times, yes, at the polling place, and yes, for Donald Trump in the 2016 election. And I can cite dozens and dozens of other cases of voter fraud by Republicans. 
high-profile Republicans, in fact, even if they don't report them on Fox News or over at Breitbart, which I'm sure is the only news that Curtis ever actually learns about. We have covered incidents of fraud by high-profile Republicans, from Mitt Romney to Ann Coulter to Newt Gingrich. I could, I could, yes, go on and on and on. Uh, You can just look them up over at bradblog.com if you prefer which I suspect uh, Steve Curtis doesn't read. So that's one of the reasons why he doesn't know anything about all of this high-profile Republican, yes, voter fraud. He may not be familiar with Google. Now, not that there is a massive epidemic of such voter fraud, but since that's what uh, Republicans, including the president of the United States, have been charging, that there's this mass epidemic of Democrats uh, committing voter fraud, which is a lie, and which not true. is a lie. Uh, the president has been lying about this for years, and it's so it's important to respond to that from time to time, especially when the president himself has claimed without any actual evidence that anywhere from three to five million people voted illegally in the 2016 election, which he lost at least by the popular vote, by some 3 million votes, reportedly. And that's why, of course, he says that anywhere from 3 to 5 million of the votes were actually uh, people voting illegally. So far, no evidence of anything anywhere near that at all. But since uh, Curtis, the former Colorado State Republican Party chair, um, you know, since there apparently are no cases in his lifetime of voter fraud that have been committed by anybody but Democrats. Well, let me give him a reminder, a new reminder, another one, another case of, yes, Republican voter fraud that we have for you today. Actually, another actually proven and documented case, not just made up hearsay like Donald Trump has been claiming. Uh, But this is a case that actually Curtis may now be quite familiar with uh, from the Greeley, Colorado Tribune this week. By his own admission on the witness stand this past uh, Wednesday afternoon, October 2016 was a rough month for former Colorado Republican Party chairman Steve Curtis. It was the month during which he is accused of committing, yes, voter fraud and forgery after he filled out his ex-wife's ballot and mailed it in. She had recently, uh, well, actually 11 months earlier, moved out of their Firestone, Colorado home and at the time she lived in Charleston, South Carolina. Yet Curtis said in court on Wednesday, uh, although he concluded he must have filled out the ballot and submitted it in an envelope with his ex-wife's name on it, that he had no memory of the incident for months. That's because he said he was in the grips of a severe diabetic episode at the time. Apparently, he's lived with type 1 diabetes for almost 30 years, he said, and it is a very debilitating condition. Although over the past 30 years... Uh, It has been difficult for Curtis. Still, he was able to rise to prominence as the Colorado GOP chair from 1997 to 1999. And during that time, he did not apparently shy away from hard work in other parts of his career either. By October of 2016, when things were so rough that he could not remember committing voter fraud, before going on to say that he was unaware of any fraud other than by Democrats, at that time he was working between 80 and 95 hours a week at three different jobs, 
including his career as a right-wing talk show host on the radio for the Aurora-based radio station KLZ AM 560, a job that he also had to commute to multiple times a week. So he was able to do all of that, but he can't remember filling out this ballot illegally, unlawfully, and signing it. With somebody else's signature. And sending it in, right. During October and the months that followed, he said that his blood sugar was consistently high that month, and that's why he said he doesn't remember filling out his own ballot on October 16, filling out his ex-wife's ballot on October 22, or putting both of those ballots into the mail on October 24. When confronted with evidence in the months leading up to the trial, however, he conceded that all three of those events, yes, took place. If convicted, the uh, Greeley, Colorado Tribune reports the uh, former state Republican chair faces up to three years in prison. Well, good news. That was Wednesday uh, when he testified on the stand. And on Thursday, Steve Curtis, the former chairman of the Colorado Republican Party, was found guilty by a Weld County jury of voter fraud and forgery. His ex-wife had moved, by the way, to South Carolina and, and learned that her ballot had already been cast when she had called the county clerk in Weld County to see how, how she could vote from South Carolina. The deputy district attorney, Tate Costin, argued during closing arguments of the case that he knew exactly what he was doing. He received the ballot in the mail, opened it, voted, signed it, sealed it, sealed it back up, sent it in, and says uh, that Costin said if he were going to sign a name during these, this confused diabetic state, wouldn't he sign his own name? Why her name? She hadn't lived in the house for 11 months, he said. Curtis uh, is the third Coloradan to be convicted of voter fraud this year, though apparently the only one to be convicted for voting fraudulently in the uh, in the 2016 election that Donald Trump says three to five million voters illegally voted in. And yet they can't find any other ones in Colorado, even though they've got a Republican secretary of state there. I wonder if Steve Curtis will remember this one. Oh, he'll have a few months uh, to think about it, I think, uh, in jail. Uh, Actually, perhaps a few years in jail to think about it. At least I hope. A Colorado Springs woman. And the reason I hope, by the way, is, you know, yes, it's a fairly minor crime. But when you have this jerk going on the radio, going on AM radio, going on commercial radio and telling millions, millions, tens of thousands, perhaps millions of people. Yeah. That uh, he can't remember any sort of fraud, that all the fraud that happens is by Democrats. Well, you know what? I hope he gets a whole bunch of years in jail to think about that knowing misinformation that he's been putting out there, that he and the rest of his party have been putting out there for years, convincing people that it's a good idea to institute new laws that will make it harder for people to vote, harder for millions of people to vote, harder for, yes, Republicans to vote, but often, more often, Democratic-leaning voters, students, minorities, elderly people. But frankly, I don't care who he's making it harder to vote for. Uh, I'm going to call them out for it. I'm going to call out anybody who makes it more difficult for legitimate voters to be able to cast their vote. 
Um, he was uh, the third Coloradan this year uh, to be convicted of voter fraud. A Colorado Springs woman also pleaded guilty in early September to voter fraud and forgery for casting a vote in her deceased mother's name back in 2013. Um, and uh, another man of the Golden, Colorado, pleaded guilty in February to voting. I'm uh, not a man. That's a woman. Tony Lee Newbill uh, pleaded guilty to voting um on her dead father's ballot. Again, these are vote by mail, not in person yep. voter fraud, which is, you know, what you've always said. That's what they require the IDs yep. for because Republicans are trying to make people believe something that is completely not true. Yeah. And by the way, when Democrats say oh, voter fraud doesn't happen, I always correct them. Uh, they're making a mistake to say that. Because, yes, voter fraud does happen, but it's almost always via mail, via absentee ballot like this. And these sorts of, uh, frankly, sad cases. You know, someone's wife dies and uh, the husband votes in uh, on her ballot, you know, that gets sent. Um, so, no, not a massive. This is how voter fraud tends to happen in this country. And often, yes, by Republicans and Democrats. But it's this usually, uh, you know, nickel and dime kind of vote by mail fraud. And uh, that's just one of the reasons, by the way, that I am no fan of vote by mail unless it's absolutely necessary for someone who can't vote in person, hopefully on Election Day for some reason. Or you can drop off your vote by mail in person at the precinct on Election Day. Yeah, but still, if you're going to have it at home, that means that uh, voter fraud can happen. You can sell your vote. You can show it to somebody. You can, uh, you know... Uh, intimidate your wife into voting the way you want her to vote. That's so that's true. why I say vote All at true. the polls yes. uh, is better, despite, I know, a lot of folks, uh, a lot of folks who listen to this show up in Oregon, Washington State, they have all vote by mail there. Colorado now does as well. So you'll see more and more of, of that sort of thing. Uh, in any event, the Colorado Democratic Party took the opportunity to take a dig at Curtis and Republicans. After the verdict was announced, uh, saying uh, this is Eric Walker, uh, who said, uh, a spokesman for the Colorado Democratic Party, voter fraud is virtually non-existent, uh, is a virtually non-existent problem that Republicans use as an excuse to justify voter suppression tactics. In fact, says Walker, Voter fraud is so rare that the only person to be charged and convicted of committing voter fraud in Colorado in the 2016 election is the former chair of the Colorado Republican Party. So Curtis is scheduled to be sentenced uh, in January. The forgery charge carries a possible sentence of up to three years in prison. So that's voter fraud. Very rare, very difficult to flip an entire election with it. Election fraud, on the other hand, by those who have direct access to computers that are rarely, if ever, checked for errors or manipulation, that's another question. The computers that tally our vote, that count our votes, um, and if you've got 30 30 seconds of access to some of these machines, which, of course, election officials often do, Uh, The people, the vendors, the private vendors who make these machines, they often uh, have that kind of access to these systems. If you have that kind of access, you can flip an entire election like that in a moment. You know, the idea that uh, getting uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, in the case of Donald Trump, uh, people to vote illegally 
at the polls with nobody catching them or even by absentee ballots in order to flip an election. Well, that's uh, a much much more difficult to see. But <laughs> well, it's the uh, dumbest way to steal an election. Well, I mean, if you could just go to the computer and spread a virus yep. or et cetera, get so. an insider or hack into these systems. Well, we talked with uh, John Brakey, longtime election integrity advocate, uh, on this show a few days ago. You can download that report, that broadcast at bradblog.com. Uh, he is trying. He's fighting like hell for oversight of the Alabama. U.S. Senate election on Tuesday, where they use computers. Uh, they have paper ballots across uh, almost all the voters in Alabama will use comp- uh, paper ballots, hand-marked paper ballots. But those paper ballots are counted by computers. And the particular computers that they use in Alabama, the, some of the newer versions, they're digital Op scan digital scanners that actually take a photograph of the ballot itself as it goes through. And they count hundreds of ballots per minute very fast, runs them right through there. They take a photograph of it, and then that photograph is read by the computer to determine the results. Now, though that that computer may be programmed correctly, may take a photograph correctly or incorrectly. The computer may read what that photograph says, right or wrong. We have no way of knowing unless we actually count those paper ballots by hands, unless human beings actually count those paper ballots by hand. However, there is a way, but it's very hard to get get at those paper ballots. And in Alabama, in fact, state law says that those paper ballots will be run through if there is a recount and the race between Roy Moore, the Republican candidate who has been charged with all accused. sorts of uh, accused of all sorts of sexual improprieties versus the Democratic candidate. Doug Jones, the uh, former U.S. attorney, that race is likely to be very, very close. We will see. We will find out. But if it is, getting at at those paper ballots is very, very difficult, if not impossible. And so... um, and a recount would be on those same would machines. Would be on those machines. I'll okay. run those paper ballots back through those same machines. Right. So fighting to get at those paper ballots, we might be able to do it through a public records request, but that takes months. And, of course, Roy Moore, if he wins, or Doug Jones, if he wins, will already be seated in the U.S. Senate, will already be voting for and against these this huge shift of uh, money from the middle class to the rich through this uh, so-called tax plan from the, uh, from the Republicans. Uh, but in the meantime... Uh, there is something. Those photographs of those paper ballots, those are digital and they are stored by the voting machines. If the voting machines, uh, I'm sorry, the, the voting tabulators, these digital scanners, if those digital scanners are set in such a way to save those photographs, those photographs could be released immediately. Doesn't hurt anyone. Doesn't harm the paper ballots in any way. They could just be released to the public so we can try to count those ballots ourselves. Well, that was what uh, John Brakey from Arizona, longtime uh, election integrity guy, was on this show talking about and saying that he was going to um, he was trying to work with the folks in Alabama, with the election officials there to encourage them to turn on these ballot images on these machines, to turn on the setting that would save them instead of delete them immediately. Well, he's down in Alabama now. And uh, in fact, Uh, He has filed suit. This is a press release from the group that he's working with, says a Republican, a Democrat, an independent 
and a minister yesterday. Walk into a bar. Yeah, I know. Sounds like a joke. <laughs> yesterday, uh, they asked a Montgomery Circuit Court judge to order protection of election materials from the uh, Senate special election. The voters say these materials are essential for verifying the accuracy of the election results and that the state plans to destroy them. At issue are these ballot images created by digital scanners. Uh, where the paper ballots are fed into 85 percent of vote counting machines across the state of Alabama use these uh, these type of systems to read the ballot images. Brakey says in this press release, John Brakey says that the secretary of state's office is legally required to set procedures to assure that all election materials for 22 months after a federal election are retained. Even the envelopes, he says, from absentee ballots have to be kept. Destroying the ballot images, he argues, is illegal. We're only asking the Secretary of State to follow the law. Uh, One of the plaintiffs, Victoria Tuggle of Cullman County, Alabama, said we need to make sure we can check on the results of the election. If there's a question, the confusing ballot design for the special election makes it extra important that human eyes can can verify that the machines are counting votes correctly. And yes, it is a confusion. There's only one race on the ballot. Roy Moore versus Doug Jones. That's it. This should be an incredibly simple ballot. But because of, I guess, the way the laws work in Alabama, they have an option there for straight ticket, straight party ticket voting. So you can vote for the Republican Party or you can vote for the Democratic Party. So essentially, where there should be two choices... Republican Roy Moore, Democrat Doug Jones. There's actually four choices on this ballot, on this ballot. And it's unclear to me if these machines will be set properly or if, you know, if you check straight party ticket Democrat and you check Doug Jones, will that be thrown out? Will as one, an overvote as an overvote? Yeah. Uh, or if you choose straight party Democrat and not Doug Jones, will that be ignored as an undervote in the race? So having these ballots, uh, these ballot images here could be very helpful. Uh, And the public could look at those images and make sure that the machines count every ballot where the voter intent is clear, says uh, says the plaintiff Tuggle. So um, another plaintiff in the case from Madison County added, uh, we're fortunate that most of the voting machines in Alabama create these ballot images, but not every state has them and they can really make our elections more transparent. Uh, and uh, Brakey notes, as he did on this uh, on the broadcast a few days ago, that in a similar action in Arizona earlier this year, the judge did rule that ballot images are public record and must be preserved as outlined by law. So um, the, these machines, again, they can be set. Uh, they point out that you can save all the ballot images. You can save only the ballot images on uh, write in votes. Or you can save no images at all. And Brakey has been told that most of these machines have been set to save ballot images only in the event of write-in votes. He's trying to get them uh, just to turn them on, to save all of the ballots, uh, to just flip that switch on those machines. The voters filings uh, filing the, the, the case are asking the judge to order all of Alabama counties to do so. Uh, and uh, they argue this can easily be done in time for Tuesday's special election. And John Brakey sends me an update late today saying that there is a court hearing on this matter. They filed the suit. There's a court hearing Monday morning Boy. in front of Judge Roman Shaw. 24 hours before the election. Right. 
And at that point, at somehow they're going to, I guess, uh, change all of the, uh, the the tabulators, which is also fraught with potential problems doing that that late in the game changing the switch why that switch isn't on in the first place i don't know all right one more though this is related new york daily news has noticed what john brakey and friends are doing in uh, in alabama oh yeah in uh, in an editorial uh, today from the uh, new york daily news editorial board they write in that alabama special election for senate tuesday Officials are flouting federal and state laws mandating that all election records be retained. This is dangerous. The Daily News writes, Alabama counts votes like New York does. Paper ballots get fed through computerized scanners which photograph them and generate a tally. But Alabama, breaking the law, doesn't keep the images. That could cause havoc in a recount. They note that in New York, images are retained and are publicly available. However, in Saratoga County, New York, where its city charter amendment was defeated by 10 votes last month, the Board of Elections has denied requests for those images. (laughs) See how hard they make this? They say that this is going to make it so you can recount, and then they stop well, you. Well, then they don't let you see that. You can't see the paper ballots, and you can't see the images, even where they exist. And in places like Alabama, they're going to try to make sure they don't exist. They note that Ulster County, New York, is also refusing to produce ballot images. Hmm. And they finish the editorial saying, cough them up. They're public property. They absolutely are. Keep up the fight down there, uh, Alabama. We'll be watching you. Quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Every breath you take and every move you make, every bond you break, every step you take, I'll be watching. Trying to, trying to, and uh, trying to watch that election. That's why, that's why I saying that uh, the only solution I see to this fine mess is hand-counted paper ballots on election night. Uh, but, you know, we'll we'll keep up the fight. We'll take what we can get. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Okay, I want to see if I can get to some listener mail here in the few minutes we have left. Uh, but I wanted to note, uh, this is a point I have been uh, arguing that uh, you remember when I said that Republicans in Congress would never allow any gun legislation to go through Congress, no matter how many mass murders we have in this country day after day after day. Yeah. Well, looks like I was wrong about that. With lightning speed following mostly party line passage of the measure in the House Judiciary Committee just days earlier, Republicans rammed a bill through the full U.S. House on Wednesday that would make it easier For gun owners to legally carry concealed weapons across state lines. This is the first significant action on guns in Congress 
Since mass shootings in Nevada and Texas killed more than 80 people, the House approved the bill, 231 to 198, largely along party lines. The measure would allow gun owners with a state-issued concealed carry permit to carry a handgun in any state that allows concealed weapons. That now goes to the uh, that now goes to the Senate. Republicans said this so-called reciprocity measure is a top priority of the National Rifle Association. Of course it is. And that it would allow gun owners to travel freely between states without having to worry about conflicting state laws or civil suits. Opponents, mostly Democrats, say that the bill could endanger public safety by overriding state laws that place strict limits on guns. So once again... So much for those states' rights that Republicans pretend to carry about, but only on issues where it's favorable to whatever policy they feel like they like saying that they uh, you know should be determined by smaller government at the state level, where states know what is best for their citizens. Nope, not here. Congresswoman Elizabeth Esty of uh, Connecticut called the bill an attempt to undermine states' rights to hamstring law enforcement and allow dangerous criminals to walk around with hidden guns anywhere at any time. She says it's unspeakable that this is Congress's response to the worst gun tragedies in American history. She represents Newtown, Connecticut, where 20 first graders and six educators were fatally shot back in 2012. Numerous police and law enforcement groups oppose this bill including the International Association of Chiefs of Police, the Major Cities Chiefs Association, and the Association of Prosecuting Attorneys. So why do Republicans hate law enforcement? I don't know. I guess they're cop haters. Uh, former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, who was shot in the head in 2011, she denounced the House action. She says she's angry that when this country is begging for courage from our leaders, they're responding with cowardice. Despite calls by Democrats for tighter gun controls, Congress has taken no steps whatsoever on guns in the following weeks. Uh, after the uh, Las Vegas shooting that killed 58 people, the November 5 shooting in Sutherland Springs that killed more than a dozen, or the shooting a week or two ago up in Northern California that killed five, or the shooting at the high school in New Mexico on Thursday that killed three, or obviously I could go on and on and on here. Uh, the point is, uh, the only action they've taken is the expansion of so-called gun rights. And that's the only action they will take so long as Republicans control Congress and so long as the terrorist-enabling NRA controls that party. As AP reports, the NRA applauded the vote in the U.S. House. The concealed carry bill, they say, is the culmination of a 30-year movement recognizing the right of all law-abiding Americans to defend themselves and their loved ones, including when they cross state lines into states, apparently, that do not want this to happen. So if you, uh, uh, Jesse Alaric, uh, communications director for OFA, Organizing for America, said, uh, called this insane said, for example, that Massachusetts has a rigorous process to obtain a concealed carry permit in Massachusetts, but Vermont has no requirements at all. So under H.R. 38, uh, Jesse Lyric argues, a guy from Massachusetts could just buy a gun in Vermont and bring it back in and override Massachusetts state law. And in fact, according to the legislation, if a, a Massachusetts cop questioned his right to carry, H.R. 3 actually allows him to sue that cop and that police department. 
All of this, despite, as we recently reported, uh, a new Quinnipiac poll finding that Americans overwhelmingly want more gun safety measures, not less, including over 60 percent who would support a total ban on the sale of assault weapons and 94 percent of gun-owning households who would very much like Congress to require universal background checks for all gun sales. Uh, I had more on this, and I suspect we'll have more in in the days ahead. Ernie Canning, our uh, legal correspondent at the Brad blog, thinks that this law will be found unconstitutional. Maybe we'll uh, talk about this more in the days ahead. But I wanted to get to some related uh, listener email here, uh, email from Tom L. to bradcast at bradblog.com, who says the NRA is a terrorist outfit. Dear Brad, the NRA uses the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution to justify or cover their terrorist activities, promoting the sale of dangerous weapons, including gun silencers for private profit. I think you should use the following counter argument that does um, I'm sorry, that would go well with gun supporters as well as with the public at large. Tom says the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution does not, and I repeat, does not give anybody the right to purchase and possess weapons for the explicit purpose of killing innocent people. You can argue against the NRA that what happened in Nevada, let's say, was a prime, clear-cut example of how some maniac was using the Second Amendment as cover for purchasing dangerous weapons for the sole or clear-cut purpose of murdering in the first degree innocent people. He says the intent of the shooter was clear, so this argument can be made and counteract uh, the sick and terrorist intentions of the NRA. He says, however, you have to write this concept into the laws of this country. Please read this on air. He says, I enjoy your show, Tom Hmm. L. Well, thanks, Tom. Uh, who apparently really wanted me to read that on air because he sent it like five <laughs> times today. Well, thanks, uh, Tom. W- once is fine, Tom. I get them. I get them all. I read them all, even if I can't always reply. I take Tom's point. However, where he argues that um, the guns in uh, in the Nevada case, for instance, were specifically purchased to kill innocent people, I'm not sure how uh, how he or we uh, can, would actually know that. How would you establish intent? Yeah, if he bought those guns over a series of years, for example, purportedly for protection or hunting or whatever, how would it be known if he had purchased them to kill innocent people? How, how, would, how would we, any of us, know that this, uh, in, in any instance, how would we know that? Are we supposed to ask the buyer, hey, are you going to intend to, do you intend to kill innocent people with this gun? Um, so I'm. I take the point. I don't know how such a law could actually be enforceable in any way, uh, much less constitutional. That's a separate uh, question. But uh, thank you very much for that, Tom L. Interesting concept. Um, uh, uh, more from uh, Jeff K. Uh, on a different issue uh, concerning my conversation with Gaius Publius. And uh, my contention that Democrats are scared to death of pretty much everything and therefore they uh, they legislate, they react, they legislate out of fear. They turned on Al Franken out of fear of what would be said about them and so on and so forth. Jeff K. writes, I don't believe it's true. Dear Brad, you are one of the finest people, a half of one of the finest teams broadcasting. Yeah, I like that. I thought you'd like it. (laughs) 
The finest team broadcasting and publishing on the most urgent issues challenging our democracy. So I don't believe the yarn you were spinning during the Gaius Publius segment. He says one of your go-to rules is facts, just the facts. And yet your entire characterization of the factors that presage the failure of our democratic legislators to advance populist safety net measures and quality of life protections while enthusiastically and without a murmur of dissent voting to outbid Trump and the Republican Party's already shameful, historically immense defense budget proposal by increasing it by $70 billion, your entire characterization of the factors ensuring their continued failure already presupposes that they are, in fact, even committed to advancing such populist egalitarian legislation. You are far too smart, he says, to really believe that hype. Though undoubtedly some Democratic legislators are committed to such goals, Gabby Giffords, Bernie Sanders, et muy poco al, I think he means Al Franken there, uh, he says, sure, once in a while they might mouth off some of the old Democratic bo uh, Party boilerplates, but hardly a one displays even a minute sign of real commitments commitment to those beliefs when it comes to job performance and when in a supposed de democracy we are appraising our representatives in government it is job performance that is the facts just the facts hmm. um, so essentially he's taking uh, Gaius's uh, point here in saying that no it's not because they're afraid it's because they really like it this they way they like it this way they are bought off by the corporations just like the Republicans um, Jeff K. adds, I thank the skies every day for you both and all you oh. do. Much love, Je Jeff. And he adds, I pledge to pledge a show of financial support oh. before the end of the year. Bradcast is a treasure. Well, thank you so very much, Jeff. much, Jeff K., whether you agree with me or not. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that pledge of support at Brad bradblog.com slash donate if you uh, if you share Jeff's ideas or mine share your or disagree with them in any way I had one more here that I wanted to get to uh, because the subject line was Mr. Obtuse and it starts Brad you <laughs> obtuse goofball <laughs> talking we'll about uh, our conversation on uh, on Russia and the investigation there we will have to hold that for another time from Randall H sorry about that um, but thank you all for uh, for your input anytime, for or again me anyway. All right. Uh, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us and for sending in your emails to bradcast at bradblog.com. You can also find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters while we're still here at the Brad Blog. And again, bradblog.com slash donate. If you would like to help keep us on the air before or after the end of this year. I think that's it. Is that all? That's all. All right, good. All right, until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. 